0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Dr. Becca Tarnas, who joined me to discuss her work exploring the concept of the imagination. Becca is a scholar, artist, counselling astrologer, and an expert in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and Carl Jung, with a PhD in philosophy and religion from the California Institute of Integral Studies. We talked about her background in researching and exploring the nature of the imagination, how the work and theories of Tolkien and Jung can help to offer an insight into that, and how it might be applied to further understanding paranormal phenomena. Really intriguing stuff, I think you'll agree. Enjoy! Becca, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Ah, You're very welcome. To begin, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and the research that you do into the imagination.
1: Well, um, my background is... um actually comes out of environmental studies and theater but then I took a an interesting turn when I started at graduate school uh, in California the California Institute of integral studies and um, I went there to study uh, archetypal patterning and cultural history and integral ecology and a whole wide range of subjects in a program called philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. Uh, so that pretty much sums up what we're doing, That that wide range right there. And it was while in my master's degree, actually, that I took a course with my professor, Jacob Sherman, on the creative imagination. And he traced out in that course, the philosophical understanding of what the imagination is and how that understanding has evolved through through time from Plato's understanding of what the imagination is to Aristotle's and then through different medieval perspectives such as um you know from Vico and and then we read Mary Shelley in the time of the romantics and the the course ended with J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. And I'd read that essay many years before, but it hadn't really sunk in in the same way. And I had been um, a deep lover of Tolkien's work, um, his stories of Middle-earth, and of course, especially The Lord of the Rings for many years. And in reading Tolkien's philosophy of imagination as he presents it in this essay, uh, in this course at CIS, I realized, oh, this is something that I can study from a graduate perspective, from an academic level. And it's not this really powerful interest in the imagination and story that had been with me for really my whole life. Um, I, I could, carry it into this other realm. And, and so that opened me up into studying the nature of the imagination. I'm really questioning, what is the imagination? Is it a uh, faculty of the human mind? Is it a, uh, an element of the cosmos? Is it an expression of the mind of God? <laughs> um, is it a place uh, the the idea of the imaginal realm as uh, Henri Corbin talks about and coming out of the uh, Sufi tradition. So these were questions that that opened up for me in that study, and I, I carried them forward into my PhD research, which was on parallels that I found between the Red Book of Carl Gustav Jung, the depth psychologist, and the Red Book of Westmarch of J.R.R. R. Tolkien, um, which essentially is The Lord of the Rings.
0: Right, okay. And when you were doing that course that you talked about, did you, because I imagine, speaking for myself, sometimes it can be hard not to think of the imagination as a faculty of the mind, even if you're open to the idea of the other aspects of it that it might be was it hard for you to contemplate the other aspects of what the imagination might be alongside the standard model that might exist? Because I I get the impression that the standard model is that it's a faculty of the mind, that it comes from mind. And the imagination is sort of the imagination is in us, whereas the others seem to be that perhaps we're in the imagination. Hmm.
1: It's a tricky question to try and explore because it it brings up it you know immediately when we ask is the imagination a part of the mind well then that brings up the question what is the mind yeah and that opens up the whole realm of what is consciousness and so then you have to kind of pick apart the relationship of consciousness to mind mind to the brain and i'm of the perspective that mind and consciousness is not something that is simply you know excreted by uh, by the brain um that it's not a it, it isn't something that is kind of an epiphenomenon of matter uh, but rather that we could think of the brain as a a receptacle as something that is catching the to use a certain metaphor, like the airwaves of uh, mind or of consciousness. And the imagination, we, while one could say it's one facet of the mind, what if we reverse that? What if the mind is one facet of imagination? And rather than saying, I have an imagination and it's my own individual imagination, and you have your own individual imagination. There's this idea that we are within imagination and we are tuning into that. And, you know, maybe we could open up our terms here a little bit, and that the imagination as a human faculty perhaps that's what gives us access to imagination with capital I or imagination in terms of it being a realm or a place that is not physical, that is not purely abstract, but something kind of in between. Now we're using the same term imagination for both of those, but perhaps it's that faculty within us or as part of the mind that gives us access to that realm or opens us up to that. Um, But these are, of course, speculations to philosophical musings around what the role of imagination is in how we understand and how we interpret the world. And as soon as we open up into these questions, we've left the realm simply of, you know, cognitive science, and we've landed amongst psychology, we've landed into Philosophy we 've even entered into the realm of spirituality
0: hmm I'm just thinking that sometimes there are dismissive terms like "Oh, you just imagined it or it's all in your imagination, and children sometimes have imaginary friends, and that term the term imaginary seems to almost in some ways be used to mean not real and I, it's, it's kind of jailbreaking out of that mindset, isn't it I think
1: absolutely it's a it's a reclamation of the imagination. Hmm. And notice when you say those phrases, these kind of commonly used dismissive phrases of, oh, I, I you just imagined it or that was only a fantasy. We have to qualify it. We have to use the just or the only or the merely that degrades the imagination. And this complete dismissal of the imagination is something that isn't universal and hasn't been the case through all of time. It's a very modern and rationalistic phenomenon. It comes out of a worldview that prioritizes materialism, that prioritizes the hard physical material reality being the only reality. And so then everything else can be dismissed as only imaginary. And by dismissing that, we very quickly start dismissing many other things. If, if you throw out the imagination as being unreal, quickly you start to throw out mind as being unreal and at that point you you will find yourself in a very kind of paradoxical place of you know there are, there are certain scientists who are out to prove that they their actions are completely determined by their genes by the the firing of um neurons and that that's it. There's nothing else going on. And by the time you end up there, you've cut off so much of human experience that the conversation starts to become very nonsensical and even in some ways meaningless. So by reclaiming the imagination, we're reclaiming mind, we're reclaiming consciousness as something that's real, that is an inherent part, not just of human experience, but of cosmic experience, that consciousness itself may be an expression of the cosmos, and not only human beings.
0: Mm, Definitely. Something else that I've come to realize is that often there'll be little clues in the terms of phrase that people use. So Often people will say something like, when they've asked how they had a certain idea about something, they'll say, oh, it just came to me. And they say that sort of Out of hand, like yeah. But the words, it came to me. I mean, perhaps that is how ideas work. We don't have ideas; we are able to access ideas, and they come to us, and we express them. And that'd be even more ironic if that was a materialist scientist, and that when it worked that way on them. And and yeah, it's it seems it seems like there are clues to to some of the things we're talking about in 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 language.
1: I completely agree with you on that. That the unconscious way that we articulate ourselves really often reveals a great deal about what it is that we're unaware of saying and that an idea can just come to us or that inspiration, we we can't necessarily put our finger on where it has arisen from. We're not consciously thinking through and now i have an idea and i know exactly where it came from there's more of a feeling that we are vessels or receptacles who are receiving something coming from beyond us something transpersonal and to to trust the imagination to work with the imagination is really to hone our Capacity to receive those messages when they come in. And that's something that artists are very skilled at being able to create the container to receive that imaginal inspiration. Hmm. Or, you know, we often associate the imagination with artists, but think of how that can show up for a scientist who is coming up with a new theory. And yes, they have all the data in front of them, but to have the theory that unifies the data, that has to come to them from from somewhere else, from somewhere beyond them that will make the data carry sense. It'll make it make sense. And so the imagination is at work, not just uh, among artists but among scientists among um, politicians coming up f- with new policy ideas and and so on
0: mm, yeah and inventions as well often there'll be a spark of genius that, that someone someone has a has a moment oh you know like um who's that chap in the bath um Archimedes sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah
0: um going back to Tolkien um sorry, did you want to say something?
1: Oh, well, just that you said that spark of genius. And if we look at what the origin of the idea of genius is, genius is a spirit who inspires us. And that in earlier centuries, when a new idea comes to us, that spark of genius, the genius has whispered that into our ear. It's only in Modernity, at least in the West, that genius becomes associated with an individual human being. That poet is a genius. That scientist is a genius. And we have conflated the inspiring spirit of the imaginal with the human being who is the receptacle for it. And then we all long to be geniuses when really. Perhaps what we should be doing is tuning ourselves to the genius that, that moves through the imagination. And sometimes we catch it and sometimes we don't, but it's more about honing our ability to listen than kind of hoping that we were born a genius.
0: Yeah. I think the sense of humor can work like that.
1: <laughs> mm, yes.
0: I always love it if I, if I make a really funny joke. But I do feel like it's sort of come from somewhere. How are you suggesting, sort of tuning myself in to that sort of thing and and then something comes to me and I'm able to quickly get it out there.
1: (laughs) That's a great example.
0: So going back to Tolkien. Yeah. What is it about his philosophy on the imagination that is such a great medium for exploring what we're talking about?
1: Well, I think that Tolkien's philosophy of imagination, which can be kind of cons- subsumed under the term sub-creation. That was the, the phrase that he used for it. And it wasn't so much his philosophy of imagination that is so profound, although it's it's worth exploring and really trying to understand what he meant. He didn't articulate it in a lot of places. It wasn't like Tolkien spent um his time writing books on the philosophy of imagination really it's just in this one essay on fairy stories that came out of a lecture he gave and really just one section of that essay which is called fantasy and what he's doing is he's trying to make sense of his own process of creation his own imaginative process when he is writing stories. So for Tolkien, the the action comes first, the, the storytelling comes first, and then he's trying to make sense of it later versus some other people who might simply apply themselves to understanding the philosophical perspective and maybe have done that better than Tolkien. But what's great about taking in Tolkien's wrestling with what he was doing is that we get a glimpse into the mystery of someone who is so highly creative as Tolkien. So this idea of sub-creation, which is in part informed, even though he doesn't say this, directly, but he's referencing Samuel Taylor Coleridge, one of the romantics in his theory of imagination. And Coleridge went into delineating what he called the primary imagination from the secondary imagination and differentiating both of those from what he called fancy. And what Coleridge is trying to describe with the primary imagination is that it is the mind of God. It is the imagination of God. And what the imagination of God creates is all of the cosmos, all of creation, the primary world as we perceive it. And so for Coleridge, the primary imagination is also the It's the prime agent of all human perception. That's how he describes it. And so when we perceive the world, when we look outside and through our eyes drink in the outer world or through our ears we hear the subtlety of sound, those perceptions, those senses of the world, we are taking in directly the primary imagination or the imagination of God. So that is our faculty of all human perception. And Coleridge then speaks about the secondary imagination. And the secondary imagination, he says, is different in degree from the primary imagination, but not in kind so you can think of this as like a scale of imagination. And at one end, you have the primary imagination of God. And then this difference in degree is that it the secondary imagination is the human imagination. And so in this case, the the secondary imagination is what then takes in the perceptions of the primary and bodies it forth into new human creations, poetry, art, a story, painting, dance, and so on. And, or, or scientific theory, for that matter. So it's like the primary imagination passes through the human faculty of imagination, secondary imagination, and brings forward something new that is that has as its fundamental ingredient what comes from the primary, but has been transformed, transfigured through our own human creative capacity. So we can apply that idea of primary and secondary imagination to what we were talking about earlier. Is imagination a human faculty? Is it uh, a, a realm or a an inherent quality of the cosmos? Do we find ourselves within imagination? Coleridge was wrestling with those ideas himself, and, and that's how he made the differentiation, that what we're calling the human faculty of imagination, that's the secondary. And this larger imagination that we find ourselves within, that's the primary. So, yes.
0: No, sorry, go ahead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's his differentiation. And then he contrasts that with fancy. And for Coleridge, fancy is something more along the lines of when we just make something up. So it's the what's just imaginary, what's just made up. It's when we kind of piece together something that we've taken in from the outside world and bring it forward, as kind of presenting it as you know this is a a new creation but really it's kind of a a conglomeration of things it doesn't have the the inspiration or the inherent sense of reality that a product of the imagination the secondary imagination does so he differentiates those and it's this delineation that Tolkien picks up and he decides to put his own language to it and what Coleridge is calling the primary imagination. Tolkien also calls imagination. And what Coleridge is calling the secondary imagination, Tolkien is calling art. It's the subcreative art that shapes what comes to us from the imagination. And he he doesn't really go into the whole piece around fancy because he wants to reclaim that word. Because Tolkien, ever the the linguist and philologist, he says fancy, that's just a degraded word from the word fantasy. And Tolkien is all about reclaiming fantasy. And so this is the term that he actually decides to use to describe what the subcreative art is. When you take imagination and you shape it sculpt it through art the result is what he calls fantasy and that's what he sees his stories such as the lord of the rings as that there is a primary inspiration that has come through and then he has shaped it carefully meticulously through the art of writing down the story, editing it, making sure everything fits perfectly. So so there's that, what he calls, inner consistency of reality. And then the result is fantasy. Anyway, that's a lot of different terms to try and get close to this understanding of imagination really as something that is a gift from the mind of God, from their perspectives.
0: Mm, That's that's fascinating. Um, I'm just trying to understand the influences that Tolkien had during his writing career, because I know that when he was at Oxford, he was friends with Owen Barfield. And the work you've done, you talk about the Red Book of Carl Jung as well. And Tolkien himself was a scholar who was interested in Norse mythology, and he translated Beowulf. And it seems like there's a lot of things going on in his life that encourage someone like him to engage with his imagination.
1: Absolutely. He was he described himself as a young man with too much imagination. And he started writing stories very early. I think the very first story he wrote, he was probably seven years old. And it was about a a green great dragon. And his mother told him, no, you can't say green great dragon. You have to say great green dragon. And he never really understood why. But his very first story was about a dragon. He always loved dragons. And it wasn't too long after that, that he started dabbling in language invention. And there are some hints, and i that's the most I can really say, hints couched within his fiction, his letters, that perhaps he was hearing certain words coming to him, coming through him, as as we've been saying, and that... in in the context of a couple of his stories, so I'm always careful to say that it's in the stories, he describes these words as ghost words and that he built up the languages, the Elvish languages that are at the heart of his stories of Middle-earth around these ghost words. So they were like the seeds and then these languages shaped up around them. And as someone who was fascinated with language, Again, from a very young age. I mean, he's doing this uh, as a child moving into his teens, then definitely picking this up very strongly through his twenties. Um, and he really, it was through his whole life. He called it his secret vice that he was niggling with these languages. But it seems like these, these heard words, these ghost words as, as he's called them in his stories, Um, And the stories I'm referencing are called The Notion Club Papers and The Lost Road. They're they're unfinished tales that he wrote. Um, That language then gave birth to story. And it was in wanting to find a home for these languages that the myths started to arise. And the myths that he was writing. And so we can see in Tolkien's creative process both internal and external influence internal influence coming from from the imagination coming from within him and certain hints within his drawings and again these languages that maybe he was having something along the lines of what we would call visionary experience um and and this was happening basically right at the same time that Carl Jung was undergoing his fantasy experiences that he recorded in his red book. So this is around, you know, 19, 11, 12, 13, um, leading up to the first world war. And then for both of them through the war as well. And, and yet for Tolkien, there's also like, like all of us, there's external influence. Nothing just comes from within we're influenced by myths Norse myths for Tolkien, Celtic mythology, Germanic stories and and particular authors as well. He was inspired by William William Morris and George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton and numerous others. And now I'm I'm speaking here about his earlier influences when he was first writing um the lo- the book of lost tales for example, the earliest stories of Middle-earth. But then Later on when he's at Oxford, um, beginning in the late 1920s, uh, into the 1930s and definitely 40s, that's when he has his close friendship with C.S. Lewis, the author of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Space Trilogy and all his works of Christian apologetics and, and a friendship with Owen Barfield too. That friendship was mediated by Lewis uh, Lewis was kind of the glue that held the inklings together. And Barfield's ideas of language and the evolution of consciousness, these really influenced Tolkien. And he he said, I believe it was after reading Poetic Diction, uh, which is Barfield's book that came out, I believe in 1928, where he traces... Through poetry and language, the evolving meaning of words, Tolkien said, upon reading that, there were all kinds of things he realized he could no longer say because it reshaped his perspective on where language comes from and how it evolves. And something that that Barfield and Tolkien shared is that words are not arbitrary. they're not labels that are simply. Meaninglessly placed on objects. The objects themselves, and we can't even call them objects at this point, the subjects themselves indicate what it is they're meant to be called in the variety of the world's languages. So, words, names actually have an inherent, deep, and souled connection to what they describe. And While Barfield looked at this from the perspective of the evolution of consciousness and being able to see how words themselves indicate earlier forms of consciousness where the ensouled or the psychical is not split from the physical and the material as it is in our language where we have to, even as Mm. I'm describing that to you, I have to use these kind of either or, both and language, spirit and matter, soul and body. In earlier forms of um, certain words, all of that is united together. The uh, The soul of the the word is within the physical expression of it. And for Tolkien, words also carry this kind of interiority. He felt that if you could understand a a language say a dead language like gothic um that you could actually get more than a glimpse an understanding of the culture that gave birth to that language um and so because of that he said language and myth are deeply interconnected you cannot have a language without a myth and you cannot have myth without the language that forms it and that is why, for him, in creating languages, he had to create stories, and in writing stories, he felt it was necessary that they have their own language because that's where culture is—at the intersection of language and myth.
0: And that—that's where world building starts, I suppose. Like you got the fundamentals. World, of... but yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
1: <laughs> oh no, I, please. <clears throat>
0: No, it was just that I was just making that point. I think you know, with those things, it's almost like if you have that, then it allows you to kind of explore that world, create the world that Tolkien did. I mean, they're so rich and they're very complex histories. There aren't many writers that I, I can think of that have done that.
1: Yeah, it's there is that term now world building to describe what Tolkien did and what individuals like, you know, George R. R. Martin do with, um, a song of fire and ice, uh, game of thrones and, and many other fantasy authors. I think for Tolkien, he would have seen it less as world building and more as world discovering and then shaping. So there's, a quality of discovery for him. And then, and he describes that many times in his letters that he's discovering how the story unfolds, where it unfolds, where it takes him. But then he's the one shaping the message. He's the one who is choosing the language of how it's told and making it consistent, making sure that what he's discovering lines up consistently with everything else that's previously been unveiled. And and that's the difference, I think, in writing a consistent fantasy novel versus what Carl Jung do, did with the Red Book, where he writes down the fantasies that are coming to him, but he's making no effort to turn them into a story beyond that. Because that's not what Carl Jung's work was about. For him, he wanted to understand the vision-making capacity. The fantasies arise, and then he wanted to understand where are these coming from? He was less interested in the content of them and more in making sense of how it was even possible these, these visions or fantasies were coming to him. He could have made a very different choice. Jung could have made the choice to take these fantasies and make them into a consistent story in the way that Tolkien did. And that's just, it's the difference between an artist or an author and a a psychologist and a scientist. So it's what we choose to do with what arises through the imagination that really determines the form that others will experience it in, whether that is a great tale like The Lord of the Rings or uh, and a world, maybe a, a term that I like for that even better than world building is world crafting. Hmm. Because that crafting does give you a sense of the skill and the artistry of the craftsman, but it somehow carries that sense of shaping something that's already there um, whereas for Jung, it took the form of an entire psychological system and what a gift that has been, how many people it's helped because the, the vision making capacity, the fantasies arising through him come from the unconscious. They come from an archetypal realm that we all have access to. And so his psychological interpretations of that are something that, are applicable to others as well when they're working with their own relationship to the unconscious their own relationship to the archetypal Mm. so
0: yeah definitely i mean going back to what we were talking about before i think we take for granted the power the imagination has to shape our world because i i do a, a star trek podcast with some friends and a couple of times we've had scientists on the show to talk about an aspect of science that's in star trek and we'll talk about how they got into science and they were saying well actually it was it was was star trek and often they'll say there was a a character in a show inspired them to take a certain path and in the world like star trek you know the the civilizations that exist in that the planets a lot of people will know them far better than what would what we would consider real places on earth and they mean more to them and it's it's almost like they they do exist it's just how they exist and i think sometimes it's almost like where we live what some people might call the physical realm is sort of primary and these other places are secondary. And it's sort of, I don't know, perhaps adjusting that viewpoint or or not needing sort of the physical realm to be the point from which you judge reality.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's that hierarchy that you're talking about of breaking down, I think is, is really important. And on, you know, on the one hand, I understand why we do call the physical world primary and uh the secondary world you know the imaginal realm as as a secondary world because there's a feeling of it being maybe nested somehow because we have this sense of interiority when we go to the imaginal realm it's within us but uh an idea that comes from Henri Corbin actually and the uh from Sufi mysticism that I've been thinking about a lot recently is that He describes if you go so far inward, you go into your inner realm, your imaginal realm, that interior psychic space, then what takes place is what he calls a topographical inversion. And you find yourself on the outside again. But now you're in this other realm, you're in this imaginal realm. So you've gone through this, you know, Alice's rabbit hole, for example. And you've ended up on the in- so far on the inside that you are on the outside again. And when you're there, is it really secondary? So I think there's a reason that we have this kind of primary and secondary delineation because it speaks to the worldview that we're within or that we're, we're coming out of where the primary world from the perspective of some kind of a materialistic viewpoint, the primary world is the only world. And I've struggled to find the right language for that. Do we call it the material world? Do we call it Mm. certainly the real world? That starts to break down. Um, Yeah. (laughs) What do we call that? And what I love about exploring these ideas is that it shows the limits of our language. And it shows that new language is ready to emerge, to be discovered because of our recognition of the reality of these experiences. And when imagination and fantasy are recognized as ontologically real, then they're no longer opposed. They're no longer a dichotomy or a binary. And then and then something else can emerge. And I feel like we're right at that interesting pivot point in terms of paradigms or worldviews where we don't quite have the language yet to describe what that really is when we come back to a state of consciousness where the physical is once again united with the imaginal or the material is once again unified with the unsold. That is what Owen Barfield, who you brought up earlier, he describes that as original participation, where the it's very clear to that particular form of ancient consciousness that the material world is itself ensouled. And the language he would use, I think, for what I'm trying to describe is final participation. Now, final gives you the sense of there's an ending there, and I would like to think the cycle keeps going, but maybe we're encroaching upon what Barfield called final participation, where there's a reuniting, a coming back together of the physical and the ensouled the material and and the imaginal and so on. Again, you can see like our language, it just breaks down. I'm having to speak in these binaries to try and get Mm. close to describing what it is that you and I are probably both intuiting. We know what we're pointing toward, but our words are not quite there yet.
0: (laughs) No, I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) I think you're you're being Mm. far more erudite than I am. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) That's interesting though. I mean, do you think that We live in an era where, for the most part, we probably first experience engaging with stories through books and the story is sort of contained in this physical object. Do you think with that being the primary way that we engage with story for the most part, has has that changed our relationship with the imagination and and allowed for this ability to kind of separate out what we were just talking about?
1: That is such a great point to make because the difference of a A culture, a literary culture that reads stories within books, where it's encap encapsulated between two covers versus a an oral tradition hmm. where stories are told over and over again, where the myths are lived and breathed you're absolutely right that there's a very big difference between those. And that when we finish a story that we've read by ourselves in a book, there's a tremendous interiority to that. And then you know you close the book, you put it away on the shelf. It is, it's completely sealed off versus when you are just immersed within story as a part of everyday life and conversation. I think maybe we do still have access to that in some ways through, you know, what's coming to mind for me. I grew up with uh, family stories, like my, my bedtime stories often, I would have the choice when my mother was putting me to sleep, for example, between she could read me a story from a book, Or what I would often choose is tell me a story from your life. Tell me a family story. And those family stories take on the quality of myths. They take on the quality of that oral tradition, something that's told over and over again that shapes your sense of identity and who you are. And those family stories aren't written down in a book. They're not something that we can just put back up on the shelf and separate ourselves from. So uh, that's a really, that's an excellent point that I hadn't thought about with the kind of clarity you just brought it forward in that it's with particularly the invention of the printing press and the dissemination of books in that manner, not just the dissemination of ideas, but the eventual evolution of story from from myth in an oral culture to legend in an oral culture that might eventually get written down and that's where we have the the handwritten medieval books for example that they're named after the color of their cover and the place where they're housed you know that's how we get the first written tellings of say the Arthurian legends which are kind of blend of legend and myth and fairy story and then those get you know, redacted and reprinted. And um, and they do, they take on more and more of this. The comparison that's coming to mind is that just as stories get encapsulated within their physical covers, that's happening simultaneously with a kind of development of the buffered self or the buffered ego in consciousness. And the stories in a book and our sense of identity is within our, uh, you know, to use Alan Watt's term, our skin encapsulated ego. And there's a parallel there. What happens when those bounds are broken? When the stories get told aloud again, and when our sense of identity is no longer just within our own encapsulated being, but rather our identity is one that is interconnected, indeed unified with with the cosmos itself.
0: Mm, definitely, and thinking about a, a world before there was mass production of books if you look back at societies in ancient greece and rome and even further back the the pantheon of gods that they had and the story the legends that come from those times they make more sense as as existing as coming from that time and, and having a reality in that world i feel
1: absolutely it's and none of those myths have gone away they've just found themselves in different places. Something that I find interesting about the way, for example, the Greeks would talk about the gods. They would talk about love, for example. Love is a god. Anger is a god. That's where we get Aphrodite. That's where we get Aries. Death is a god. Time is a god. Rather than this... Other way, uh, this kind of inversion of speaking it, about that, where we say God is love or God is all powerful, rather it's the, the what we now would identify as a human emotion or a quality of the world, identifying that as a god. And now, where do we find those gods? We find them in the psyche. We find them in psychology, and it's. You know, Carl Jung said, because the stars have fallen, we need a psychology today. And it's the same idea because the myths, the gods are no longer a part of the natural world. We have to go within, we have to go into our own human psyche to find them. But as I was saying, you go far enough in and and you find yourself on the outside once more and you're in the realm of the gods the realm of the archetypes that is the imaginal realm
0: yeah definitely and for a god you know 2 3000 years ago i think it would make more sense for them to have a literal presence on earth whereas now it just i don't think it would yeah you know, for that for that being whatever it is it isn't really serve much of a purpose and if you think about the internet i mean hermes was a god of writing and magic and communication and and so yeah i mean the internet feels a bit like a god doesn't it it's a it's like a rebranding of a of a much older entity
1: and what we so one of one of my roles in life is as an archetypal astrologer and looking at the world through an archetypal lens and that can be as an astrologer that can be as an archetypal psychologist one develops the capacity to recognize archetypes. Really, it's like learning to recognize gods in the particulars, in the external world. And what you're describing of the internet is like an expression of Hermes, of that god. Well, what we what we astrologers and archety- archetypal psychologists do is find the gods in the particulars. And when you recognize that Mercury is present in the internet or in this conversation or in a written book or in a text message, wherever we find that capacity of communication, speaking, thinking, learning, writing, education, institutions of education, We say that is a god. That is an archetype. And we've found them in the outer world. And that capacity to see them, it's what James Hillman called the archetypal eye. I think it's not just going back into a mythic way of seeing, as in going back into an earlier phase of human consciousness. I would say it's actually again, kind of coming toward that idea that Barfield described, a final participation of a reunification of the archetypal with the particular. And being able to see that is is bridging something that has been separated, that for whatever reasons, the modern mind needed to separate those out. And maybe now what we're Beginning to see is that coming back together, and you that coming back together is present when you say something like Hermes is present within the internet.
0: Hmm. It's really interesting in paranormal research and study. There's the idea of, of thin places between our world and, and another. Do you think there are places where the connection to the imaginal realm is stronger? I'm just thinking of cryptozoology at like Bigfoot, for example. I mean, I really think that there is something to that entity. And there's part of me that thinks in, in wilderness, it could be something like a, a, a creature, but I, I always think that it's more likely to be a supernatural creature. And do you, do you think that with things like cryptozoology and some of the things reported there, and in ufology as well, do you think these might be entities from the imaginal realm that are able to come through to what we experience as our world, quote-unquote?
1: Well, I can only speculate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Of course. And
1: I do feel like those creatures of the imaginal, as we could call them, to take them seriously doesn't mean to take them literally. And so just to clarified terms here, maybe to take it literally would say that something like Bigfoot or a dragon literally actually physically exists in the external world in the same way as um, the deer who's walking by my, um, my door right now is. But I also don't want to fall into that modernist way of saying, oh, it's only imaginary, Maybe it's an intersection between the natural world and the imaginal world, and it's in that fertile place between worlds that such creatures exist. I think that in some ways they've taken refuge in the imaginal realm because we have scrubbed them from the physical realm. So they have to go somewhere, and they are the kind of being who have the capacity to to find safe harbor in, in the imaginal world. And so that's the place we have to go to rediscover them in terms of there being places in the physical world where maybe that veil is thinner or where it's easier to access the imaginal world in the physical realm. I personally feel that Anywhere that is less dominated by the human species is more likely to be that place. We are more likely to find fairy, as Tolkien called the imaginal realm, in the natural world without human constructs in the way. It's, I think it's a lot harder to find that in the midst of a city, for example, where we've taken over every square inch and made reality in our human image than to enter into the mystery of the natural world, which is inherently imbued with the imaginal. And one place where I have experienced that kind of thin veil, you could say, is Iceland, where there is a cultural lingering cultural belief still, at least among some of the population, in the presence of elves and fairies, the Huldefolk as they call them, the hidden people. And they cannot literally be seen with the physical eyes. They have to be seen with the imaginal eye. But they are also a part of the landscape there. And there is a There is a certain effort put in to, say, build roads around known homes of the huldefolk or that particular places, waterfalls and areas near the glaciers, for example, are the, the physical, ecological homes of these imaginal people. So... In that way, I guess it's, yeah, once again, it's it's an intersection. It's an intersection between the physical and the imaginal. And if we go to a physical place where the human relationship to the imaginal makes space for them in, in a place such as Iceland, and I know there's places all around the world like that where there is space left for the other beings, then yeah that is more likely to be a place that we could go to encounter them but if you go to such a place being entirely skeptical with a rationalist materialist mindset that says this doesn't really exist why would they show themselves to you because because you have not respected or even given heed to developing your imaginal function, your imaginal access. But I think the important piece here is that differentiation between the literal and the real. Yeah. Because we far too often fall into thinking that the real is only the literal. And it's a little more, I would say, probably complex than that.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I have to admit, if I was a a dragon right now, there's no way I'd be Doing anything on Earth, I'd just be keeping well out of um, appearing to human society. It wouldn't be; mm. it would be kind of pointless, really. I think.
1: Mm. And thinking of the dragon too, if we think of the mythic or the archetypal qualities of the dragon, the dragon is—I mean, they're—they're they're wonderful, fierce, magical creatures, and also some of the qualities that have been described, associated with them are greed, power, possessiveness, hoarding. What do they do? They hoard wealth in mountains and guard against anybody else taking them. Well, it sounds an awful lot like a dragon has taken hold of corporate capitalist mindset. Yeah. So if you want to find the world's dragons.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there was a a news story I read recently that like half the world's wealth is owned by eight people. So yeah, I mean, they could at least look like dragons (laughs) rather than just people. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, fair enough, I guess. But yeah, that's that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, Becca, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for um, creating such a lovely space to explore such wide-ranging and fantastical ideas.
0: Oh, thank you. If people want to find out more about you and your work and your, your books, how best do they do that?
1: The easiest way to do that is to visit my website. It's just my name, com, And there I have housed all kinds of essays I've written and v- videos and podcasts and um, also links to events that I'm doing that are coming up. And furthermore, the my publications. Um, I have one book to my name, Journey to the Imaginal Realm, which is a reader's guide to Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And then um, I'm the the editor and co-editor of a a couple of volumes of Archive: the Journal of Archetypal Cosmology, which is a, an academic research journal exploring correlations between the movement of the planets and archetypal events in human history.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you. No, you're very welcome, Becca.
1: It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Really appreciate it.
0: I really enjoyed that interview. Hopefully you liked it too. i have been wanting to discuss this subject on the podcast for a while, and Becca was the perfect guest. I heartily recommend checking out her website, where you can find out more about the book Journey to the Imaginal Realm, along with her other writings and work covering a wide range of fascinating subjects. As we discussed, it's interesting how, for the most part, if something is described as imaginary, that is most often taken to mean not being real or only existing in the mind, when the truth of the matter is that the imagination is something that can be interpreted in a number of different, equally valid ways, many of which include concepts that I think are helpful when it comes to studying the supernatural, and the nature of reality itself for that matter. That's all for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch with me at Sphere HQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical and on most of the well-known podcast platforms, where you can follow and subscribe. Ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Until next time, stay safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.